also hey, uh, just a reminder that um sometimes we we don't we don't mention our offering boxes but we have offering in the back and we're grateful for you for that so just a reminder that's there but if you're a visitor here the biggest thing of value you could put in that is an is a uh, visitor card and just so we can put you on our email list so if you're visiting right in front of you snag a visitor card if you could fill that out and there's a box here if you miss this we got another one in the hallway or in the, in the lobby out there uh, to sign up as well and uh just to know that it's always neat to see in just a little bit we'll be able to at the end of the service we're going to commission off and and send off caleb earhart and and uh and just mentioned as well another gentleman tommy who's been serving uh in with our church he's he's been away as well we're going to mention them and pray for you guys but some of our missionaries come home and fill us in on things and that is uh sam marcinic will give an update from score international next week really excited about that and then in a couple of weeks is it what's the date carrie 12th the, the week after so not this week but the next one whatever that is <laughs> Carrie Anderson is going to be sharing what went on with him, and uh, so Carrie, we're we're excited about that, you know, um, and uh, just to see what. Well, obviously, we look at you. I think the best comment. Sorry, Ben Berger, I'm going to bust you on this one. Ben, who's by the way married, he makes this statement. You know, he says, uh, he says, I looked at him up and down like just how. And I'm sitting there thinking, who are you talking about? He goes, talk about what God's done in this man's life. And I'm like, I think we've all been there, Ben. But uh, we just look at you from top to bottom and think what God has done. And uh, you're 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 safe enough in your masculinity. I can say that. <laughs> And we laughed and we cut up. But with those of you who don't know, Carrie was in a, a terrible motorcycle accident. Um, 36 days on, on, on ventilator. Uh, how many? How many th- 50, 55 days on a ventilator? Wow. Way too many days. And here you are. And you're not only sitting here, but you're walking in with no cane grandparents do a little new calf this week you're already riding your tractor and uh we get to hear from you so there are sermons we preach and there's sermons you live through and unfortunately you have both of you guys went through one so sarah and carrie uh, you know we thank you and sarah you're much much as part of that healing miracle as anything so we'd love to have you say whatever you want to say you know thank you um well if you'll draw your attention to john chapter 10 as we go there uh, we're going to be walking through some scripture and it's going to come off and uh, folks I got to be honest with you I thought Jack and I were talking last week we're thinking I think we could walk through chapter 10 in one sermon and then realize there's no way and then the whole week up to up to today I'm thinking how am I going to fill a sermon with what's left in John chapter 10 and it's one of those things where you just kind of end a sermon you feel like the Lord ended it and now I'm sitting here thinking how do I feel how do I uh, have enough time to tell you everything because it's that rich so let me pray for me real quick I get situated and we'll jump in Lord Jesus please speak through me God open our ears open our minds Father we pray that any distraction just is not a distraction that God would just don't let me be a distraction either focus on your word in Jesus name amen Amen. Thank you. And again, Chris and Kristen, thank you. Thank you, by the way, to the kids as well. You guys get to do this again for the second service. You've got full pastoral privilege that you can look at your iPhones or do whatever you want. You've already been to this message. So anyway, mom and dad, is that cool? So they, whatever. Um, but anyway, uh, if you would go to John chapter 10, verse 22, 
we, we picked up, okay, last week in the discussion, if you recall, or if you happen to be familiar with John 10, there was a discussion of the sheep. Jesus was saying, I am not only your shepherd, I'm a good shepherd, and not only am I a good shepherd, he then says, I'm the door by which you must enter. I mean, he went from describing himself as a shepherd to now an object, I'm the doorway in which you come in, and then by the way, you're just not a flock, you're, uh, uh, um, which is multiple flocks in a fold, I now make the whole, I, my wish is to make the whole fold my flock. I mean, profound, profound things. And we're right in the middle of this, this discussion. We're about three months out from Passion Week. Okay, so this is, in three months, Jesus is going to be back in his place. This is his last gracious plea to these people to receive him. And they're not they're antagonistic. We left off. Some of them are starting to believe. Some of them are like, this guy's got to be who, who he is. Remember, like Shale said a few weeks ago, there's no one in Israel who's not aware that Jesus is alive. He's not an obscure priest. He's not a radical rabbi. Jesus has laid the foundation of who he is. Everybody knows what he's saying. And so here he, he's walking in the portico. He's in, he's in, in a, it's like a, a gigantic wraparound porch for those of us from the south, right? I mean, he's walking around this huge portico and he's engaging uh, with the people. It's a winter time. It's also during a festival. So pick up, look at um, John chapter 10, verse 22. So, by the way, verse 21, they were wanting to stone him to death, okay? Verse uh, 22, at the time of the Feast of Dedication, it took place in Jerusalem, it was winter, and Jesus was walking in the temple, in the colonnade of Solomon. Now, this is when I'm not trying to geek it out and get really nerdy with you on this one. You don't have to write all these terms down. You can Google this later, but it'll give you a little bit of explanation if you'd go back to the verse 22. We says here, at the time of the Feast of Dedication, the reason I want to mention that very quickly is a lot of you, a lot of times we roll through Scripture and we think, oh, it's the Feast of whatever, the Feast of the Broken Bread, the Feast of Lights, the Feast of whatever, and we walk, we, we may roll past that. It's important to understand this is a big feast. If you've been in with a series of John, you've seen there's feasts that are called pilgrimage feasts. People go to your land in which your grandparents and grandparents and grandparents were born. This is not one of those. This was a stay-at-home feast. As a matter of fact, some of your translations may say Feast of Lights. This is a feast which the, uh, the people, according to Jewish and Judaic uh, tradition, would say that the lamps, the oil was used during this revolt, right? It was, they lit these oil lamps turned them on, the oil was supposed to only last so long, it lasted eight days, till new oil could be produced. And to this day, that festival is now known as Hanukkah. So the Hanukkah you hear celebrated is, is derived from Feast of Dedication. And this was a very passionate feast. And the reason I want to break it down a little bit more into this is, uh, um, is be- just bear with me on this one. It's uh, year 167, the temple is overrun by a group of Syrians. Uh, Antiochus Epiphanes was a leader, a Syrian tyrant. And so Antiochus Epiphanes goes into this, this temple, empty it out, and puts a, a, an actual statue of Zeus, the god who he worshipped. Antiochus Epiphanes, Epiphanes is a given name. Epiphanes means God with us. That's how arrogant he was. He wanted to stamp out Judaism. As a matter of fact, he, he, 
He made sure there's no more circumcision anywhere. A tragic thing happened. Two women did circumcise their children. They were brought out. Their babies were killed, displayed with the mothers as trophies, and then the moms were, were pushed off a cliff. This is how evil he was. Uh, this Epiphanes name was actually given to Jews, actually called him Antiochus Epiphanes. Epiphanes meant lunatic. So that was their, ne- that was their, their name for the guy when, it, when, of course, nobody could hear. So this small group of Jewish priests, a lot of younger priests, banded together and they wanted to retake the temple. And so they resorted, to, believe it or not, these scholars resorted to guerrilla warfare and began attacking the soldiers of, uh, of, of the Syrian leader. And eventually one day, they stormed the temple. They took it over. And so in one, uh, year 167, they take over the temple. They, they, they overrun it. They succeed in everything. This temple light, the, the, this, this festival of light starts being derived from this. Um... All of a sudden, they see that they have a, they have a, they have a claim again. Like, uh, Judaism can reign once more. A guy named Judas Maccabeus comes in. Maccabeus meaning the hammer. Judas the hammer. It was a great middle name, by the way. Jake the hammer, if you didn't know. Like, Ju- <laughs> Judas the hammer comes in, and he institutes this strong Jewish force to protect the temple, to protect Jewish customs. The people feel safe. <coughs> And so all throughout this period of time is a talk of a Messiah coming. Why do I go in a little bit more detail about that? Because when you see the Feast of Dedication, Jesus walked and kept this feast in his life. I think that's important to remember. You ever been around another Christian when you get near December and they're like, well, you know, Christmas really isn't, it's really kind of a Roman pagan holiday. And we really kind of derived and jumped off of that. And Jesus did, he upheld a non-biblical feast. And I think it's important to say, anytime you have an opportunity to bring glory to Christ and bring glory to God, use it. And that means sing it out on Christmas. Let it be done. Also, the second reason I'm saying this is because of this. The, the whole festival was bent on this. Getting rid of those who are in power and bringing back, the, bringing back the word of God of the temple. Are you catching the irony that he's showing up at the Feast of Dedication, looking at the people who are in power and saying, I'm here to bring the truth back into this temple. And for one more reason, I would say. Every time you may have heard, I've said it, other ministers say it. The people, have you, have you ever heard this people say, um, Man, you know, the people were looking for a Messiah that wasn't like Jesus. Well, exactly. They were looking for... This was a patriotic period. They're proud. They kicked out a ruling nation that had a lot of, uh, a lot of power. They're very patriotic Jews right now. And they've been telling everybody, Hey, we not only have the temple back, the Messiah's coming. So they equate the Messiah arriving with being a militaristic leader a political leader, somebody who's going to come in and crush, what, not just some Syrian terrorists that took over the temple. They're going to crush the Roman yoke of Roman law and empire. This is the Messiah. So now you can wonder why people who've been told by priests and rulers that, man, the Messiah's coming, the Messiah's coming, when he comes, he will bring his staff and he will smite legions of Roman soldiers. And the people are looking at Jesus with dirty feet, a ragged tunic, and thinking, you're it? 
You're the one. So Jesus was combating this, this perception when he, got, when he was given over into this earth. So he's walking around on this place at this time of a festival. So you get to the next verse, 24, and it reads here. So the Jews gathered around him. Keep in mind these are men. You're in the temple, even though you're in a portico, a lot of men feast. The men go out, the women are home cooking, they're getting ready, they're getting things done, they're oriented with family, the men are oriented with the religion of the day. This crowd is, uh, is large in number, and we see in verse 24, the, ga- the Jews gather around him and said to him, how long will you keep us in suspense? If you're the Christ, tell us plainly. Stop right here. By the way, how long will you keep us in suspense? I haven't found a commentator yet that said that was not said satirically. They were saying to him, how long are you going to keep us in suspense? What are you going to do now? And so this is being done and this is being said to Jesus and he's receiving this. Keep in mind, there are men wanting three and four times already to stone him to death. And they're like, all right, now, now prove it. Verse 25, Jesus answered them, here it is, ready? I told you, and you do not believe. The works that I do in my Father's name bear witness about me. Because I told you, and you do not believe. He's not saying, you doubt. He's saying, you don't believe. Do you remember the woman at the well, the Samaritan woman at the well? And he's having this discourse, Jesus was, of the Samaritan woman. He said, you don't believe me. See, there's a huge difference between doubting and not believing. How many of you, by honesty, to show anyone who's a new believer in here, and they're thinking they're the, they are the, the one exception to the rule, how many of you have at a time in your journey with Christ ever had doubt about your faith? How many of you have? I'll put Two hands up in my hair. Doubting has nothing to do with unbelief. We have to remember the difference in this. Doubts are struggles. It's a massive difference. Oz Guinness said this. Show me someone with an intensity of doubts. And I will show you someone with an intensity of faith. Show me someone with an intensity of doubts. I'll show you someone with an intensity of doubts. You work through your doubts. That's what you do. You see, doubts look for answers. Unbelief looks for excuses. There's a massive difference in that. And so if there's ever been times in your life where you've been clouded with with a shadow of doubt, just know something. There's nothing new. Jesus is saying, you don't doubt me. You don't even believe me. Pick it up in verse 26. But you do not believe... Because you are not among my sheep. This verse right here is directly related to verses 1 through 21 when he was talking about the sheep. And he says to them very clearly, you aren't getting this frequency because you don't even own a radio. He's saying, you cannot possibly hear my voice because you are not my sheep. I can't even look at anybody when I say that. It's so powerful to think, you're not my sheep. I mean, so this is Jesus who is not, he's the He's not debating with them, but he's not backing off. What's interesting about his style, you cannot gain a personality profile of just how he relates to people in this situation because there's times in which he, he backs away and lets them make a statement. He reasons with them. And then sometimes he just clobbers them with the truth. And so in this way, he says, you don't believe me. You're not my sheep. 
What verse is that? 25? 26? I can't. Verse 27. He says, My sheep hear my voice. And I know them. And they follow me. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. Oh, verse 20. I'm just telling you, if you ever described a movie and you're like, this is the ultimate sign. If you've ever described a scene of beauty about you've seen something, you're about to open a door of a car and say, you won't believe what's going to happen. If you've ever had an, a sense of anticipation, get ready. If there's one nugget, you're more than welcome. After you hear this, you're more than welcome to stand up and go home and say, it doesn't get any better than this. Here it is. Read with me, verse 28. I give them eternal life and they will never perish. And no one will snatch them out of my hand. My Father, who has given them to me, is greater than all. And here it is. No one is able to snatch them out of the Father's hand. We said last week, stop out the glory of the cross. Stop trying to figure out what sin is beyond the sacrifice of the cross. This is the beauty. There is nothing, no one, not even yourself, that can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Nothing can do that. Not even you. What a powerful thought. Verse 30. He goes on. He says, I and the Father are one. He says, I and the Father. He says, by the way, I'm not just here to fulfill my Father's mission statement. I'm not his emissary from heaven. I'm not here to proclaim. No. I, they have been thinking, this Messiah is going to come. He's going to be a part of this revolution. And then he's going to give us the greatness of God and introduce us to God. He goes beyond that. He says, I and the Father are one. Well, how do they react? Verse 31. What do they do? The Jews picked up stones. What? Again, to stone them. Here comes another threat. You've got to remember, the temple was always under construction. There is no lack of bricks and stones everywhere to pick up. These guys have bent down for the fourth and fifth time in this discourse and are ready to stone them to death. And what does Jesus do? Jesus answered them in verse 32. Wow, if you're an attorney or ever had paralegal training, watch this response and look how good this is. He goes, Jesus answered him, I have shown you many good works from the Father. For which of them are you going to stone me? He works. He's basically said, what work have I done? I I haven't done one thing you can stone me for. They're baffled. Jesus is saying this. Stop. Let's just be objective for a minute. What are you going to stone me for? Opening the eyes of a blind man. Raising to life someone who's dead. Being able to go to someone who couldn't walk and give them the ability to walk. Walk up to lepers and make them clean. What work have I done that you're going to stone me? They're so blind... You've got to remember, Jesus could confound people. Do you remember the beginning of the study of John? Jesus cleansed the temple. He turned over the, the tables and scattered everybody. Everybody scattered. The lowest estimate I could ever find in that temple were 10,000 people selling in that temple. This is not like going to the Webster Farmer's Market and saying, everybody get out of here. This is going to 10,000 people selling oxen and animals and he cleaned it out. 
can't imagine what that Jesus looked like. I can't imagine when temple guards went back to the priests and said, uh, we couldn't arrest him. We don't know why. And another time they went back and said, well, no one's ever spoken like this man. No one. Jesus looks at them, men who are about to try to kill him, and says, what are you thinking? What are you going to stone me for? How do they react? Verse 33. Jesus, the Jews answered them. I'm sorry, the Jews answered them. It is not for good work that we're going to stone you. But it's for blasphemy. Because you, being a man, make yourself God. Now, the verse I'm about to explain, if this is the part I'm saying, if you've ever had legal training, and you've ever watched someone hang themselves in a, in a, in a, in a, in a word picture and say, man, I, I, I meant this, but they, and you realize, you just, you just lost your argument right there. This is what Jesus is about to do. They just said, oh, for the works, we can't stone you. You just called yourself, you and the Father are one. You just broke the rule. You broke the law, and we get to kill you. Jesus says, verse 34, Is it not written in what law? Your law. Is it not written in your law? I said you were God's. Wow. Stop right there. Have you ever read that before? Have you ever seen that God has at times referred in the Old Testament that there are God's little g on this earth? Jesus uses this. He pulls an obscure psalm and quotes it. Like pulling the volume off of a off of a, a law volume off of a shelf and going, oh yeah, uh, page thirty three, volume five, paragraph six, point C. He calls him down. He says, "Your law. You want to execute me on your law? All right, I'm going to quote your law." He said, "Is it not written in your law? I said you were gods." Verse thirty five. If he called them gods, to whom the word of God came. And scripture cannot be broken. Okay. If he called them gods to whom the word of, word of God came. God spoke to the people. In his psalm. And I'm going to show you this psalm. These people are judges. Not the judges like the book of judges in the Bible. These are judges who sit on a council and will rule on religious matters. Look with me. At eight, Psalm 82, up here on the screen, watch this. Watch this psalm, these verses that he's quoting. Here it is, Psalm 82. God has taken his place in the divine council. In the midst of the gods, here it is, he holds judgment. He's speaking to these religious leaders. He says, he's angry, by the way, when he's speaking here. He says, uh, at, at, at their actions, he says, How long will you judge unjustly and show partiality to the wicked? Give justice to the weak and the fatherless. Maintain the right of the afflicted and the destitute. Rescue the weak and the needy. Deliver them from the hand of the wicked. They neither have knowledge nor understanding. They walk about in darkness and all the foundations of the earth are shaken. He says here, here it is. This is the one he's quoting. I said, you are God's sons of the most high. All of you. This word God's small g means Elohim, which means plural of God's. Jesus would let one day, and, and God be identified as Elohim, the one true living God. What God is saying in this case is this, I am telling you, you are, you are representatives of me. You are these small gods, again, little g gods, representing the one true living God. And so Jesus is quoting this. 
these people are now sitting there thinking, what do I do? This is not, this is not how you teach. Okay, if you're a rabbi, and I know this is getting, I, I know it's just a, there's a lot of information here, but if you're a rabbi, you taught, you taught in a style. Um, you taught in a style that would go from uh, lesser to greater. Okay, that's what you taught. You go lesser to greater. Like you, you would start with, if you were painting a picture or you're building a sermon, you'd start with the most insignificant and get to the biggest thing. Jesus, he is sitting there saying, I am God, and now I'm going to teach you a lesson and go from greater to lesser. I'm going to tell you that I am God and I'm speaking. And I'm going to tell you, open up that book. Open up that book that I gave authority to have written and look in he remember he said in that word your law look in there and by the way I didn't want to just show the six verses without the seventh verse watch this verse I just want to end this one for you in case you go home thinking what happened to all these little gods verse seven nevertheless like men you shall die and fall like any prince he said you're not going to keep on living like I am no no he says you're going to die like any other man so there's one true living God so Jesus gives this out to them and he says this, if, if they were instruments of God, and God called them gods, well, if you don't believe my works, why do you believe my words? How am I blaspheming you? Before we move on from that verse, because that verse is powerful, that verse 35, go to verse 35 again, if we could. So we just said about it, if, you, if he called them gods whom the word of God came, now look, at what Jesus says, and scripture cannot be broken. When he says broken here, a good word for that is it cannot be unchained. It cannot be, um, it cannot be set apart. Jesus is saying, oh, by the way, I just didn't pull up an obscure verse just to trivialize it, trivialize it. I pulled it up to show you and to prove to you all of Scripture is valid. He says, and Scripture cannot be broken. He says, you cannot break that apart. And we look at this and we ask, well, what does this mean? Jesus is saying, think of what you're doing. Think of this. This is treasure. You can't eliminate Scripture. Scripture cannot be changed. Christ always had a high view of Scripture. Always. Any time in which Jesus referred to Scripture, it was of a high view. 2 Timothy 3.16 later would even also say, all Scripture is God-breathed. But watch the words of Jesus when he's sitting there talking about the importance of Scripture in Matthew, 5, Matthew chapter 5. Matthew chapter 5, look at verses 17 through 19. Watch how Jesus re- revered the Word of God. He said this, Do not think that I have come to abolish the law. Or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away. You ready for this? Not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. Those are profound verses. Jesus just said there's a hierarchy system in heaven. Those who uphold the word of God and those who don't. 
those who sit there and say, but yeah, it really doesn't say this in there. I remember eating at Hot Rods Barbecue in Lutz. Do you remember Hot Rods? I was eating with a, with a young guy that just, I mean, man, this guy was so fired up, just been saved. He's now a minister in Atlanta, right? And he's sitting there with his friends. He's like, man, Jake, you got to, I mean, this guy was from the hood. He said, you gotta, he's going to bring his little hood rat friends and sit around and have barbecue. He says, tell him about Jesus. And I mean, this, he, he sits down and he goes, man, he starts talking to him about who Jesus is. And I mean, the guy was so fired up. I'm listening to him like, yeah, this is cool. He gets his party. He goes, yeah, this Jesus is awesome. All that Old Testament stuff, nah, you, yeah, I just wish it wasn't even in there. It's just Jesus. And I'm like, Ugh! Like, you know, I'm like choking up my rib as I'm sitting there talking to him. Like, it's not how it works. He's like, yeah, but all that Old Testament, they kill everybody and they wipe. I'm like, no, 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 no. Jesus came to fulfill everything. Everything. And so when Jesus says, oh, yeah. Even that obscure little psalm. And by the way, more than that, every little comma, every little dot, every little colon. They're what they call in the scripture in, in the Bible, jot and tittles. And you grow to love as you read every tittle and every jot. A jot, meaning it, which contains the smallest thing called a yod. I know we can look... This, you're really going to love hearing all this today. But a yod, smallest portion, smallest character. The difference between a capital O and a capital Q is a little slash. That's a yod. Jesus says, every yod in the Bible is that important. I think, oh, that's a big deal about a yod. So, a story of a, of a woman in a Caribbean on a cruise. She saw a $50,000 diamond bracelet. And she's texted her husband. She said, hey, I found a bracelet for $50,000. Can I get it? Of course, he replied, no. Price too high. Of course, he forgot to put the comma after no. And she looks at the text and says, no price too high. And she bought it. <laughs> I can guarantee you, that man will study every little yod the rest of his life. Jesus is saying, every jot, every tittle, every yod is important. Scripture is a seamless chain. Not one link can be removed. So he's giving them a Bible lesson. So keep in mind, they're like, want to stone him for his words. Then he says, but my works. Okay, well, it's not your works, but it's back to your words. He says, okay, my words, what about the words? He confronts him again. Verse 36. Do you say of him whom the Father consecrating and sent to the world, you are blaspheming? Because I said... I am the son of God. Stop right here. You have to be able to see the beauty that Jesus is. He is not a flannel graph picture in our minds. He is not someone uh, that is uh, a passive Jesus. He is mocking them in this statement. One more time. Do you say of him who the Father consecrated and sent into this world, you're blaspheming. You're telling me, I mean, this is like someone going up to your parent and saying, um, this, this is who this person is. Or you give a right and title, be according to me going up to Shale and saying, um, you can't call him a husband. That's not right. And you're thinking, well, you yeah, can't, I'm his bride I can do that Jesus is finding the irony that these men are telling him you're committing blasphemy it's like you're, t- you're defending the law of the one who built it I'm it verse 37 if I'm not doing the works of my father 
then don't believe me. But if I do them, even though you do not believe me, believe the works, that you may know and understand that the Father is in me and I am in the Father. Again, they, they sought to rest him, but he escaped from their hands. So he has this discourse. It was the last gracious plea in the temple. He's going to return in three months. There will be a mock trial and there will be a cross. All of Jerusalem will be in upheaval. Jesus knows this is the last discourse. And he's going to leave. He's going to go to Bethania, which is also known as Bethany. Shale teaches next week on what happened in Bethany. It's a different Bethany. It's not where Mary, Martha, and Lazarus lived. There were Bethany's all over the place. He's going to the Bethania, the Bethany, where John the Baptist was baptizing. It was a safe place. The Jewish leaders wouldn't follow there. These next few verses, almost if you're not careful, would seem like you just speed read them because the, all the meat's done. Watch the verses as they unfold. The last 40 through 42. He went a gateway again across the Jordan to the place where John had been baptizing at first. And there he remained. And many came to him. By the way, verse 41, many came to him. John continues that thread. He'll always identify when there are a lot of number of people who are coming to Jesus. And they said, John did no sign, but everything that John said about this man was true. And many believed in him there. Look at verse, um, look at verse 41. John did no sign. John did not perform a miracle. Why? Because he was not an apostle. John the Baptist did not. John the Baptist was not an apostle, did not perform a miracle. Jesus is going to a safe place. He is not in a cowardly retreat. He is not going over the body of water and going to this place because I'm afraid of the crowds. He has equipped himself to work on time. He leaves heaven with no dimension of time that we know of and works within our time. He walks up to someone and, and, uh, and heals them. He, he pays a temple tax when he doesn't have to. People are begging. People are calling him out as the Christ. Demonic people. And he's telling them all constantly, don't say anything, now's not the time. Don't say anything, now's not the time. We're here to arrest you. Now's not the time, go away. Now's not the time, now's not the time. Then at the Garden of Gethsemane, in this beautiful prayer to his father, one of the most profound things, he simply says to his father, Father, the hour has come. He worked within that context of time. So he's going to remove himself for three months in preparation. Three months of what we do not know, um, all the details of what's going to happen before he returns. Three months. But the part that stands out to me is this. He's going to the land that the Jewish leaders will not go to. Why? I pray that this comes out right because I have chills thinking about it. Because John the Baptist, he was dead by this point. John the Baptist had left such a legacy. It was of the safest place he could return. It was like William Wallace uh, fighting the English and then going back into safe Scotland and saying, this is where I'll recoup, this is where I'll reorganize. Jesus is saying, I am going back to the land of John the Baptist. Because of his work, thousands and tens of thousands of my followers are in that wilderness. 
And they're there. And no Jew, um, Jewish leader is going to penetrate that area. Nobody will go chase me down. That is where I will go. I'm supposed to be arrested here in, in, in Gethsemane, here in Jerusalem. Here is where I will, I will be put on a cross. And so he crosses into the land of a man who had tens and tens of thousands of followers. Under John the Baptist, who he gave over and introduced to Jesus, and Jesus became their leader. Think about it. The only time that people really followed anybody in this time is if you were a political tyrant and you killed and you crushed your opponent or you did such miraculous signs. John the Baptist was nothing but a fur-laden, long-haired preacher who screamed on the top of mountaintops. And he left such a legacy that his words still echoed in the valleys of Bethany. And Jesus, goodness gracious, Jesus knew he could go back there because it was a safe place. Can you imagine when John the Baptist was, saw Jesus for the first time, he said, Behold, that's the Lamb of God. Behold, look. I can't, I, and, and he, when he was baptizing, he said, I can't even believe I'm baptizing you. I'm not even worthy to hold your sandals. Can you imagine if somebody had walked up to John the Baptist at that moment and said, John, do you have any idea? You're going to lay such a foundation here in this area that Jesus is going to need it and want it. And run to it. And rest in it. Because of you. Jesus says. After he leaves this temple. I must go to the land of my people. He goes and crosses over to a land. That is still reverbing. With a powerful message. Given from John the Baptist. A man who by the way. John said. He never even did a miracle. Nothing. You and I have that opportunity. We can die with everything we own. What's going to happen to it? Pawned off at estate sales and got forgotten about, guaranteed by the next generation. Or even if it was held on for multiple generations, can a building even last a century, two, three centuries? What will last is a legacy in Christ. A legacy that you share with someone. And you share with someone. And before you know it, it happens. That's why we get excited when college ministers walk in the door going after an age group that people say is the hardest age group, but actually is the age group that sparks every revival that we know as English-speaking Christians. John the Baptist, you know, he didn't talk about heaven he didn't preach on it. You know, he talked about Christ to repent. Confront your sins and repent. And look at the impact it made. There's no difference today. If you want to write a book on heaven, no one will discredit you. You know why? Because we don't know what it looks like. Paul said, John said, Isaiah said, in a nutshell, Here's what they said. It ought to be illegal to even attempt to speak of it after they had a glimpse of it. They said you can't even imagine. There are no words in the language to describe it. The best was it it looked as if, it appeared as if, we don't know. We have no idea of that next realm, of the next life. But write a book on it. Nobody will confront you. You can go on Oprah. She'll have you on there. But write a book on this. That you need to confront someone. And deal with, with, with sin and what that looks like and begin to repent. You ain't going to go on Oprah. 
But here in this land, a man who shouted from every mountaintop, repent, 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 still is reverbing. And it made such an impact that Jesus says, let's go back to that place. You and I have that opportunity. What rich scripture. Don't just, when you talk about scripture, just don't talk about the ease of things. You know, there's a lot of beautiful places. And and I'm not destroying vernacular. I say it all the time. We find purpose when we find Christ. We find identity when we find Christ. And we are assured of heaven when when we find Christ. But it's also about giving up of something. These Jews didn't want to give up their tradition. And what they were comfortable with. And if we're not careful, we don't want to give up our customs. Our tradition. Are we any different that we look at Jesus the way they look for a Messiah? Remember, heaven's easy. If you're poor, you're living in turmoil, you're looking forward to heaven rich, you're looking forward to heaven that you never die. It does for the rich, the poor. Everybody wants heaven of some sort. But do you really, really want to know the Jesus that calls you out to say this? Look inside your own temple. And how many times have you tried to remove me? But I'm still here. The takeaways that I give to you today is this. Out of this chapter. Nothing. No one. Not you. Not your greatest sin. Not your greatest fear. Or your worst temptation. Can snatch you out of the Father's hand. Wow. Nothing. All scripture. Everything. Is inerrant. Without blemish. Every yod. Every jot, every tittle, every comma, every, every colon, everything is in there for a reason. And everything is in your hands in that scripture. Can you imagine not, not all match up to the scripture that you have in your hand? Of all the works that could have been made in there, of all the things that were copied, none of it cares to the scripture that's in your hand. Nothing can snatch you out of the Father's hands. The Word of God indwells now as it did then in which it was written. And thirdly, you have an opportunity combined with both to leave an echo, to leave a reverb of your life, not your treasures, by whom you impact, whom you lovingly talk to, whom you bring into Christ to say all things can be made new. What a message John gives us. Hope that sunk in. Hey, Caleb, come on up. And uh, Caleb, as you come up, um, 